You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Limit Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Mike Brazier. Today we have sort of a science and research episode. We're going to be talking with Dr. Mike Schumer from the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Uh, Mike is the Roosevelt Waterfowl Ecologist there. Mike, welcome back. Thanks, Mike, and uh, thanks for having me again. Really appreciate being on. Mike, not only are you one of our go-to guests for information on habitat and hunting and weather in the northeastern U.S., but you are also an important source of scientific information, new research that's underway. You're very involved in a lot of work that's going on up there. We're partnering with you and a lot of your students have over the years on on various types of research. And mallards are a topic that you... Uh, that your lab is spending a fair bit of time on, and rightly so, and that's going to be the, the kind of topic of today's discussion. We wanted to visit with you on some of the latest results from uh, the work of a couple of your students. And I guess, you know, we've we've spoken with a variety of people over the years on previous episodes about about mallards and what's going on with them all across the continent, whether it be genetics or, or population status, etc., you keep a close eye and do active research on eastern mallards. And so for those that, that may not be as in tune with why there has been increased conservation concern around eastern mallards here the past few years, why don't you kind of give us the background on that? Yeah, it's a you know really good question and, and fascinating history, right? So, you know, prior to... Um, you know, European colonization and such. I'll go all the way back to like, hey, <laughs> tell me your life story. Settle in, um, folks. <laughs> right, settle in, folks. I'll go quick with this, though. You know, um, the the east the east was largely forested. Um, it was solid American black duck territory. Um, mallards are a you know a, a prairie bird, and you know we opened that landscape up. Uh, and changed it. Black ducks declined for probably a multitude of reasons, but mostly they just don't tolerate human encroachment. Uh, mallards moved in, but at the same time, we did something else, right? Um, you know, when when uh, I mean, a mallard was an uncommon bird. You tell kids that nowadays, my students like that that hunt and that take my waterfall class at at ESF, that you know, mallards weren't here. Your great uncle didn't see mallards. Um, it was all black ducks, and they're surprised at that, right? So, you know, as black ducks declined, we wanted more birds. Um, 
and mallards had kind of moved in, but not really. And so some of this and, and some of the things we're working on with genetics is understanding if, you know, the traditional mallard as they uh, colonized the east um, were a prairie bird that moved in, or did we just put them here because we have we have dumped out a, a you know half million to two hundred and fifty thousand um, game farm mallards per year in the east, and so now, but you know nowadays what we have is this mix of uh, wild birds and and these these hybrids between wilds and and game farm birds that are on the east. And at the front of any type of you know introduction like that, and I'm not going to get too deep into the genetics, but there's this concept of hybrid vigor, and these birds do really, really well for some extended period of time. And late 90s, I mean, I remember seeing tornadoes of ducks in in cornfields. Um, well, of course, we had sloppy farming practices then, and there was a lot more waste going on the ground. But uh, you know, big tornadoes of birds, and you know, now we see about half the number when I hunt, and there's about half of them that they're. You know there used to be, um, and so we've seen you know a, a, a decline in eastern mallards. And there's several of us. There's a lot of different folks working on, you know, what the reason for for that decline is. Um, and it could be habitat. It, it could be genetics. Um, there's you know it, it it could be harvest, but it really doesn't look like that. If if you look at the most recent U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, modeling efforts with banding data. Um, you know, most of the mortality, um, the change in mortality, the change in the deaths of these birds is happening in the non-hunting season. So that's been increasing for for juvenile birds. Um, and so it doesn't really look like guns drive this population to a large degree. Um, not saying it doesn't at all, but it's definitely declined. And there's a lot of us now, um, like myself, starting to really put a lot of time into research to try to figure out what buttons we can push to get this population back up for you know, is is a is an important animal on the landscape, but also for hunters. Mike, I've I've kept track of some of the, I guess some of the attention being given to the eastern mallard situation. I know whenever you're looking at a like into a population decline, there's as you've kind of laid out there, there's a couple of different sort of demographic parameters that at a big scale could be driving a decline or it could drive a, an increase, but let's just say population change. And that's like the survival and then recruitment. There's a few other things there, but those are the two big ones. I know from what you said and what I've read in a few other places that, you know, it's, it's the thinking is that perhaps we need to look at recruitment. We need to look at where the birds are being produced. Maybe that's the likely more limiting factor here. And once you kind of identify that, if it is, then you can try to investigate some of the you know, causes of, let's say, changes in, in that kind of productivity. But it's a little more complicated than even that because Eastern mallards, or at least the mallards that hunters in the Atlantic Flyway shoot, come from different locations. And so talk about that in terms of, I, I know this has been a focus of some of the research that we'll talk about, is trying to figure out where these birds are being produced. And then why why is that important? You know, like in terms of, of helping us identify the, the major areas that in fact would be producing the birds that you see. Yeah, because you know the landscape in the east is is quite different, right? I'm in I'm in central New York, and it's extremely rural, you know, rolling um, landscape. It's pretty populated, but it's not New York City, right? 
you know, these birds do winter along the Atlantic coast. They do breed in cities. I mean, it's a mallard. It, it kind of can live anywhere, right? Um, and so across that landscape in the east, it varies greatly from very, very urban, and I'd say megalopolis, you know, Boston to D.C. and even places further south and growing. But there's, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of um, <clears throat> very productive farmland um, and, you know, dairy farm type landscape. And those places have productive wetlands. And then as you get into Canada, um, you know, these, these mallards aren't just being produced in the eastern U.S. A large, I think, you know, and we'll get into that in a little bit, a large portion of them are coming out of Ontario and Quebec as well. And in southern Ontario and Quebec until you get to, you know, um, and I'll butcher it a little bit. I did spend five years in Canada and my wife's Canadian, but I don't know all the geography maybe as well as I should. But like once you get north of Ottawa and out of the Ottawa River Valley and such, you start to hit, you know, pretty strong. It's a transition zone into heavily treed kind of parkland type stuff. And then it gets into, you know, more boreal and really low productivity. Um, so you've got a mallard, a duck that's spread out across a very diverse landscape where there's a lot of different factors impacting survival, impacting potential productivity. And so I think understanding, you know, where these birds are being produced, where they're breeding, um, and then where they're, they're being harvested really, you know, matters a lot for where we direct conservation. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot within Ducks Unlimited because we, like, even, even across the southern latitudes, mid latitudes, it's it's no secret that one of our one of our core principles is that we have to conserve, protect the areas that are producing the ducks. And for mid continent, we're talking about the prairie pothole region. We're talking about the western boreal forest. Now, those are massive landscapes and landscapes. Um, and then, of course, the, all, all of the northern breeding areas are, are kind of feeding birds into these areas. And so, it's the same idea in the Atlantic Flyway. And, and as we've talked about with you and Dr. Phil Lovretsky and others over the past couple of years, the picture of mallard populations in the east has gotten a little more complex because of the game farm mallards that you talked about. And so, it's kind of like we're, we're, start, we're, we're trying to unravel some of these new complexities that we've that we've learned about and so the data sets that we've we've used i guess for the longest period of time thus far to understand the sort of the origins of birds that we encounter um, during during the hunting season come from banding data. Talk about that, Mike, the, the, how we've used those data uh, and what we have thought they've told us thus far about eastern mallards. We use those banding data to um, understand where the eastern mallards that we harvest come from, right? So just, so just you know, from a, from a population perspective, like how much should we care about the prairies? Like that's how we have, there's an eastern mallard population, right? When you go into the... Um, Fish and Wildlife Service documents that come out each year. They designate there's there's an eastern mallard population, there's a mid-continent, and there's a western, right? And those are based on, like, only a small percentage of our mallards that we shoot actually come from the mid-continent. So we're going to focus on this eastern population. But, you know, what we do is we just, we kind of lump these at large scales because you have to have a lot of banding data to be confident in your survival estimates, right? And in your population models. And so it's, it's very hard, you know, these, these um, 
you know, in wildlife science and wildlife research, we talk about metapopulations, right? So these populations that have specific linkages between where they breed and where they go in the winter and, and, and they're different and maybe even differences in demographics among them. And that's something we haven't done with mallards and kind of where we'd maybe like to go a little bit in the future here, if possible, is to understand, you know, maybe all mallards aren't the same, right? Um, maybe the Canadian mallards are really, and that's where, you know, we'll get into that, but it really seems like the Canadian mallards are really maybe carrying the the weight here at this point. Um, and there's something wrong with the, you know, the U.S. mallard, which that's, you know, if we want to talk about the differences in, in populations and 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 um, potentially survival and reproduction, there seems to be this north-south split. We can't pick that up in the banding data right now, and I think we'll get into that in a in a little bit. But it, you know, some of that's about about sample size, and some of it's about how much these birds move around with with bands on them, and even before we ban them, it seems. Yeah, I mean, banding data is is extremely important, and I don't think we'd be at where we are now with without those data. And I, you know, you hear people say, I, "I'm not going to report my band." <laughs> You've probably heard this before, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, we're not trying to trick you. Like, report your bands. Like, this is the best stuff we've got. It's one of the greatest data sets in the world. Right um, beyond the breeding population survey, which is the largest wildlife survey that exists on the planet, you know, banding data for waterfall is a data set that people who don't even aren't even duck hunters and aren't even interested in in waterfall management use who are just interested in you know marking an animal and recapture. Right, so um, the you know the 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 data set uh, of banding for eastern mallards is is extremely important and what we've built into now um the 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 population model we're going to use to uh for harvest management you know going on to maybe get us back to hopefully four mallards we will see so mike unpack that a little bit for those that may not know a whole lot about banding operations when they uh, when they occur and why we have kind of used that understanding of duck ecology and the timing of banding to 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 draw conclusions about where the birds are being produced. Kind of unpack that a little bit to give people an idea of, of how that works and, and how we've viewed it for so long. Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks for stepping me back a little bit there. So we try to band, uh, we do what what's called preseason and postseason banding, right? So preseason banding, you try to band, you know, that largely August period, um, July, August, September, depending upon when your duck season opens. You don't ban during duck season, you, op- you, you ban right before it. And your expectation, your assumption is that 100% of those birds live to the opening day of season. Um, and then thereafter, they start to die for a multitude of reasons. Of course, that's not 100% true, but that's the assumption. And then postseason banding, winter banding, um, we abandon it for a while, but we're, there's a lot of folks now that are, and I'm one of them, that are really interested in postseason banding because if you band a bird in uh, Jan- uh, February after the season's closed and then you recapture it in August again, you know it lived the whole entire summer, right? So there's a lot of understanding that we can get of if we ban, and the same thing for if you band a bird in August and then you recapture it in February, you know it made it through the hunting season, right? So there's a lot of information. This is how, when I state, you know, it looks like 
survival of mallards has declined in the non-hunting season, right? So what's happened is that we're banning birds in February and we're recovering them again at a lower rate in August. They're not making, they're not even in the population anymore to recapture them, right? And we're finding that in that in that banded sample. And then same thing for if you band a bird preseason and then capture it postseason, you know whether it survived that hunting season or not. And so we're not seeing any change in that hunting season survival. What we're seeing is we're just not recovering these bands in that preseason after we've banded them in the winter. And so temporally, that timing of banding is 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 super important. The one thing I will say, and we'll get into this with some of the uh, work we did using feathers to determine where birds came from, which is really super interesting. The banding data for uh, where birds are produced is only as good as where you band, right? And so that is a major hole in in banding is our, because there's just places ducks are produced we can't get to, right? When we when we talk about, like I always talk about, I think more birds come out of Quebec than we expect. Well, we just, it's logistically nearly impossible to go to those places with really low densities of birds and catch them and ban them. It's just, you're in thousands of dollars per band on a bird before you know it. So we just don't, we, we don't do it for good reasons. So, you know, banding is definitely very important. It's the keystone, cornerstone of a lot of waterfall management, but it does have its own biases. And some of that is just where we go to band. The the other thing, Mike, is that if you're part of a banding crew, you would see this. You would you would understand how this how this assumption so easily develops. You're up there, you're banding birds. You go to somewhere in the prairies, somewhere in Ontario, and you're capturing these birds that are obviously juveniles, birds that were produced that year. And so the natural way to think about that, if you've got a young bird capable of flight with notched tail feathers, clearly produced that year, it's it's kind of instinct to say, oh, well, I'm banding it here. It was likely produced in this general area, right? And so that's also one of the assumptions with regard to, I guess, harvest derivation analyses is that where we banned birds, and let's just say young birds, because adults we know move around from one year to the next, and just because you capture them in one place doesn't necessarily mean they're produced there. But if you're dealing with young of the year, the kind of assumption that we've all, I think, been guilty to some extent of adopting is that where these young birds are captured is a reasonable approximation of where they were produced. Am I am I getting that reasonably correct? Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly it. And, you know, so for instance, New York State, this could go for any state. I'm just going to say New York because it's where I'm from. You know, they're like, you know, 80, 80% of the ducks we shoot um, come from New York. Well, the reality of that is, is 80% of the ducks that we shoot are banded in New York. <laughs> well, let me, right? let me, let me, 80% of the banded birds that are harvested. Yes, come, yes, Were yes. banded in New York. It's like the way we phrase this is, is really, yeah. Uh, it's and it's so, important. Yeah, it is very important. And, and uh, some of our research uh, certainly shows that, you know, these, these birds are moving. They're move- and, and it's not just ours, it's, it's other folks too. There's a, there's a fair bit of movement um, off of, probably off of breeding areas immediately, right? Yeah, so the idea is that if we're gaining new information that is suggesting that even some of these young of the year, once they attain flight, are moving around and have the potential to be captured and banded in a distant location, yet still in some breeding landscape, there's the potential for us to make a 
I guess you would just say, uh, mistaken conclusion about what that captured young bird in that location represents with respect to its breeding, uh, it, its origin of, of production. Yeah, I mean, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump right into it, what I, what I see, you know, and of course, even on the prairies, once, once ducks have hatched, you just don't see ducks. You see ducks all over in the spring. They're everywhere for anybody that's been there. And if you haven't gone to the prairies in the spring, my goodness, go. It's gorgeous. It's like an unbelievable mecca of birds. Um, even as a hunter, just go with your camera. It's it's beautiful. But, you know, we don't see we don't see ducks here on the rural landscape, right? Like ma- I'm talking mallards for the most part. You go to beaver ponds. They're just not, I mean, largely they're not there. And I spend a lot of time out- outdoors, not relative, you know, in relative to other places. I'm like, we should be seeing you know, way more ducks around than this. You, you know, you start your banding season in, in August and you don't see a lot of birds. And all of a sudden in September, you start catching mallards. <laughs> and uh, you also start catching pintails and you start seeing widgeon and you start seeing black ducks. And those are not ducks that hang out in New York. And so way we started to think about this and talk with folks at National Wildlife Refuges and wild, state wildlife management areas is I'm like, well, if pintails and widgeon and green wings and black ducks and gadwall are moving, why would a mallard that breeds in Canada or that is hatched in Canada also not move? Like a mallard is just doing something different than that, right? So it started to get me to think about like maybe we're not maybe we're not putting bands on New York mallards. Maybe we're putting them on Canadian birds that have already, you know, started to move. And even in the middle of this project, which Kayla Harvey did, right? This was, this was her master's work with us, her master's, her graduate degree work with us. She's now working for, um, went back home and is working for Maryland, uh, DNR. Um, and I'm standing there one day and I'm like, it's like August 18th. And I'm like, it was the second year of our research. I'm like, I just can't believe we're putting this many bands on. It's like hot as you know, what? And I'm like, I just can't believe we're putting bands on this many Canadian birds. And what happens but this school bus of a giant Drake black duck lands right in front of us on the lake in front of the trap. And I'm like, it was like literally in the middle of that conversation. And I'm like, this, this is, yeah, I'm like, okay, well that right there, that, that kind of tells us this, these, these birds are um, probably on the move. And this is true of, um, a lot of a lot of species, right? If it's a, if it's a type if it's a bird, you know, even beyond ducks, that breed in an area that um, they know they're not going to stay the winter. They can't physically stay the winter, and there are other areas where food might be better. Um, they just start to move, right? They start making movements that that have nothing to do with weather. They're like pre-weather type movements. This is why, like Long Point Bay on Lake Erie, duck season opens up there in Ontario on the third Saturday. September. And you can shoot almost every possible diving duck and dabbling duck species that exists in North America in, in, in relatively decent abundance. And some of that is those birds just make movements out of, that's just a funnel from the Mississippi and the Atlantic Flyway into a very productive marsh. And they just make those initial movements and then they do their bulking up. And so I think we probably, like the thought was, we're putting a lot of bands on, on uh, birds that do not originate from that banding location in general. And so, Mike, it's it's one thing to kind of develop those observations from our experience in the field and our thought process through the ecology of the birds. It's another thing entirely to try to find the data that would substantiate what we've kind of crafted as maybe some hypotheses or we started to question some of the assumptions. And so that's where your research, the research of your students comes into play. We're going to get to that here in a minute. We're going to take a break right now. And then on the backside of this, we will get into 
the research that y'all conducted and what it's telling us now about, about this entire phenomenon. So hang with us, Mike. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. We're back here with Dr. Mike Schumer of State University of New York. And Mike, we want to get right into this, the research that you and your students have been conducting to try to help unravel uh, some of the pieces of this Eastern Mallard puzzle. So talk with us about this this research. We, as When we left the break, we were talking about how we're trying to, to like find data, collect data that would help us really evaluate from an empirical standpoint where the birds being harvested and or banded in the Atlantic Flyway are being produced. So step us through that, through the, the I guess, the way y'all began to think about alternative methods and then what you ended up doing. Before you do that, actually uh, introduce the students that we'll talk about today and their research. Yeah, thanks. And, and um, you know, I really have to give the credit on this to the students. I mean, we're, and it's a mutual type thing, right? Um, we're, we're looking at training that next generation of folks, you know, Mike, you believe it or not, we're a student at one time, <laughs> a graduate student somewhere. And, and I think people, you know, sometimes when, and not you, I mean, I feel like you do a very good job of this, but some folks get into positions and they forget they were students once. And, and, but as an educator, I can't do that. Right. And so the students are uh, really our future and ensuring we've got good hunter conservationist folks out there with their heads screwed on straight is extremely important. And, and I take as, as, a, as a very serious role. And so, you know, I might be the thought machine on large projects and stuff, but the, the students are really the fuel of that um, and really enjoy working with them. So Sam Cushia was uh, one of the first ones on uh, the Mallard Project. And he came from Connecticut um, and had duck hunted his whole life um, and really wanted to come to to do some work in the East for, for birds. He's now at, uh, uh, doing his, his doctoral degree, his PhD at, uh, South Dakota state university on, on prairie ducks. So good for him for going on and, and, and working on that. But, uh, yeah, so Sam Cushia worked on, uh, the origins or natal origins where, uh, harvested mallards on the Atlantic coast came from, um, using a, a novel technique that we'll get into, Kayla Harvey came on the heels of that. Um, Kayla comes to us from uh, the Chesapeake Bay region in, in Maryland and went back that way and now works for Maryland uh, DNR, but uh, grew up in a, a waterfall hunting family um, and wanted to do some some work with, with Eastern Mallards as well. And she did um, some preseason banding, some of the stuff that we've already been talking about of trying to understand how much these birds... Um, prior that we banned right prior to hunting season um, have have been moving around. So both those folks got their master's degree in our lab at, at ESF and then one, one went on to further grad school um, and the other, uh, Kayla, went on to work for Maryland DNR. Yeah, Mike, so I appreciate you doing that. As, exactly as you described on the front end, 
We can't forget about the students. They are the future of our profession. I appreciate the work that you do to train and mentor that next generation. And that's that's always a treat for me. You and I talked about this when we were planning this, like, well, should we try to get the students on this? And I think you and I both would have loved to do that. That adds a level of complexity from the, the I mean, if we were all in person together, that would have been an ideal thing to do. So just the, the least we could do and made sure wanted to make sure we did was acknowledge them, give them credit for the hard work that they did to collect, analyze, and report on this data. And, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll try to catch up with them somewhere else down the line in this profession. So, Mike, talk with us then about that alternative method that you began to think about. Answer the question of do banding origins, where we band a bird, does that represent where the bird was actually produced? Uh, young birds, again, we're going to talk about young birds because adult birds, they could have come from anywhere. They move around, etc. Talk about the, the way you, the, the alternative method that you began to think about and that ultimately came, became the focus of this research. Yeah, so I'll do my best with this. And, you know, I might, despite that I work with, with this all the time, I might butcher it a little bit, but just trying to get it... Um, across for, you know, uh, for, for a broad audience as well. I mean, it starts with the idea that where, where I talked about before is that banding stations are always only as good as where they're at, right? Um, so there's there's definitely, we know this, there's places that ducks are coming from that we, we just don't get to. But what's, what's really important here is as a duck grows, right? As a duckling grows and grows its feathers, it's incorporating... Um, chemicals, um, uh, elements, I should say, from the local environment, right? So the water that it drinks, the water that the bugs have in them that then the duck eats, the seeds that have taken up the water, um, those hydrogen isotopes are very in, let's just say their score or value based on the amount of rainfall and snowfall, like precipitation patterns from north to south. And so those are called stable hydrogen isotopes. And we can get a value of that stable hydrogen isotope from a feather. So this feather, once it's grown at a location, say, central Ontario, right? That animal, that, that mallard duckling is feeding at that location as it grows. It can't fly. It can't move around. So that feather itself, as it's growing, um, is representative of the food chain or those hydrogen isotopes that um, exist in that environment. And so what we can do when that bird goes wherever it goes, once it can fly, that hydrogen isotope is is stable or inert, right? Um, those feathers don't continue to grow. They're, they are what they are till they drop them and regrow another feather. And so we can pull um, a primary feather, a, a, a major flight feather, and just take it's it, it's and Mike, it's interesting. I mean, when you when I send them to the lab, I'm like, do you guys get enough? They're like, you sent us like a hundred times the amount of feather you need to send us, <laughs> right? So it's only like three veins they need to digest um, and do the stabilized stuff. Now it's not really accurate. It's within like a uh, couple couple hundred miles, three hundred kilometers. I'm not going to do the math on that. Um, 100 miles or something like that, right? My Canadian counterparts are squirming right now over my lack of math <laughs> transition there. 160 kilometers, I can do that for you. 100 miles, 160 there you go. kilometers. Okay, so uh, I appreciate that, Mike. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's broad landscapes, but 
if we're talking about did this duck come from New York or did it come from the Ottawa River Valley, you know, we can do that, right? Um, did and we we did this across like you know large large landscapes. Um, and then you assign, and it's it's relatively large swaths, you know, so you can assign a probability that a bird came um, from an area. So we started with Sam Kushia's work with, so if anybody, and have any of y'all ever sent wings into the Fish and Wildlife Service, this is the side stuff that comes from that, right? Like that's used to get the, the species composition, the age and sex of the harvest, right? You know, there's multiple people that often show up to grab other biological data. We get genetic stuff from mallard wings. We, but we got, you know, uh, about I want to say it's it's a little over 1,200 wings from two years um, across the flyway to figure out where our harvest was coming from. Yeah. So to kind of reset to boil it down to that last statement there. And this was this was Sam's study, right? This is Sam Kushia's stuff, which was really the precursor to Kayla's, and I'll I'll get into why that was. Yeah, yeah. So there's two different parts to this. The, the two studies. Sam was looking at harvested birds, and then you were going to use the stable isotope analysis to try to figure out young birds, young of the year. That's that's important because those would have been birds that they would they they can't move, they can't fly until they grow their flight feathers, and so that isotope signature locked into the flight feathers of birds produced in a given year is going to match that landscape, again, broad landscape, as you said, of, of where it was produced. So that's 1,200 wings, hunter-harvested birds. Uh, hunters provided this data, whether they knew it or not. Thank you to the hunters. And so, Mike, let's, uh, do you want to step through those results first? Do you want to kind of pair it with... I guess we can probably pair it with Kayla's Kayla's study and how it differed. I mean, it was, it was similar, but it used a different set of birds, right? Right. Yeah. So talk about take up talk about Kayla's study. Oh, it's, yeah, and then put the results together sure, at the end is that. what you're asking. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So you know, Kayla's question was more about you know what not not like Sam's was where are the birds that we harvest coming from? Her question was when we ban birds, right? What are we what are we banding, right? If we banned a bird, um, an Onondaga Lake, which is right next to campus in central New York, is it produced there or did it come from um, farther away? Which which really matters because uh, I think the, you know, the backdrop of this is that the, the U.S. mallard population has been, is where the decline has been, right? The Canadian population is stable to increasing. In fact, if you look at this new, I'm like, I, I talked to um, New York State's bio, uh, waterfall biologist Josh Stiller, and I'm like, where did all, where did like hundreds of thousands of mallards come from? I don't know if you saw, but we went from, I might get this wrong, I want to say like 900 to 1.2 million or yeah, something. That's right. I think that's somewhere in the neighborhood. Yep. Right. Almost all of that increase was in it was in Canada, was in Eastern Canada, right? Um, so, you know, just because that overall mallard population in the East looks like it's doing well, it's not. Um, it's the U.S. population still not doing so hot. So when you band a bird, it would be really nice to be like, okay, are these? Are, what are we banding, right? And 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 what is the survival um, of this bird? And so if we could put a band on, and we didn't know this stuff before we started, we had a sense they were moving around. But if you can put a bird on a band on a bird in New York and be like, that bird's from New York, 
versus, you know, if we put a band on a bird in Canada and be sure that it's Canadian, then you can start to analyze those things separately. You know, lo and behold, when the Fish and Wildlife Service tried to do that analysis to see if survival differed between the U.S. and the States from banding, they didn't find any difference. And we can get into that, like, the, when we, you know, we're kind of alluding to the fact that these things move. But if a good number of your birds you're putting bands on in the States are from Canada, well, it kind of, you know, if the survival's different, it, it may, you know, boost that survival. So you can't yeah. detect that difference, right? So I, I found Kayla's study a very nice pairing to Sam's because as you, as you described, she's using the exact same method, stable isotopes, whenever you caught those hatchier birds for banding, Rather than using harvested birds, you use birds that were captured for banding, and you did the same type of feather analysis, right, to see if where you captured that bird was, in fact, had an isotopic signature similar to the signature in the flight feathers of those young birds. Did I say that right? Yes. <laughs> You're basically yes. wanting to see if that isotopic isotopic signature is in the from flight the feathers location. is from the yes. general location to where it was banded, right? So kind of yeah. two yeah. ways of getting at this same question, right? Yeah, because in here, if we go back to just banding, it's it's not very common that you band a bird in Ottawa, right? In in Canada, and then it flies to New York and you catch it again in the same season. Right? Those things are not generally happening. Um, and there's just not enough resolution there to, to understand that, you know, and some of the, you know, the impetus for, or, or the, you know, the, the, the energy for Kayla's project was, and we'll get a little bit now into Sam's results, right? When waterfall season opened in New York, which in Northern New York, it's like the first Saturday in October, right? We're allowed to ban, we ban ducks up until the last day in September. Okay. And at the beginning of season in New York, and this happened actually for every single state in the flyway other than I think like North Carolina. I think North Carolina shot more Canadian mallards later in the season. But just about every single state whenever the season opened, and this is important for New York as a northern tier state, um, they were shooting both U.S. and Canadian mallards at the opening of season. So you've got a choice there. Birds just all of a sudden, when we stop banding in September, fly like crazy for <laughs> a week and then are mixed, or they were already there in September. And so from Sam's work, looking at this, the where these birds were coming from during the hunting season, it just said, you're shooting Canadian and U.S. mallards all at the same time. That kind of led us to think that for Kayla stuff, we would probably find that same pattern in banding. What we were really surprised is that even in like mid-August, we were picking up birds that had moved like a thousand kilometers. Like they'd move substantial distances. Like as soon as they can fly, it looks like they're 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 moving around. Let's go back to Sam's work now. What we were really looking for from a harvest standpoint is boy, maybe, maybe we can structure the season where we're not shooting the birds that are susceptible. And then once we get a bunch of Canadian birds in, maybe we can open the bag up. Maybe it could be three, maybe it could be four, right? And protect a local population. You know. And it's really quick that you just all of a sudden turn this information into like, oh, we knew that all along, <laughs> right? Like real quickly, but we didn't. And and now we know like you just can't, you cannot structure a season that way with mallards because it's just this mix of U.S. and Canadian mallards pretty much for everybody's season by the looks of it. Mike, I went back through some of my files and the the way we would 
we would, and I get, we still do kind of try to get at this information of where are the birds that you harvest produced with something called harvest derivation. And it relied on banding data, and we won't get into all the methods there, but a, a, the most recent analysis of eastern mallard harvest derivation that I recall seeing, and I don't know if this is published, uh, it, it would I- indicate that in states like New York and Pennsylvania, and maybe another state that I can't remember, it was suggesting that somewhere around 70 to 80% of the birds harvested in those states were produced in those states, right? That's somewhere in the neighborhood. And so to kind of contrast that with those high-level percentages that Sam's uh, research produced, what were those? Uh, yeah, what did, what did he find in that kind of context? Yeah, so the that, I mean, I would say that was the language we always used, right? That they they came from. And now I think what we can say is they were banded there, right? So in the the population estimates for eastern mallards, about two-thirds, you know, this is rough, but about two-thirds of the breeding population is in the U.S. and one-third is considered in Canada. What Sam found um, in his work with stable isotopes was that from what we shot, is that about two-thirds of the mallards we shot came from Canada and one-third from the States. So it flips it on its head. So at face value, the only thing I can say there is we're either, we either have more breeding mallards in Canada um, than what we think, you know, or the production of... Or, or this could be an and thing as well, right? Um, and or um, the production of mallards in Canada is just that much greater than in the States. Now we just, let's just go to Kayla's work, right? What her work shows is that kind of across the board, about 50% of the birds we're putting bands on in those Northern tier states, just South of the Great Lakes are not local birds. They're actually in all likelihood Canadian birds. So all of this starts to make a lot of sense and why the U.S. population has been, been declining. I think we're kind of in the dumpster for, you know, reproductive output. You know, there could be some bias there that somehow um, these Canadian birds are somehow more susceptible to harvest. And so they they show up in the bag more. So those are the wings that get sent in. But if it's Canadian mallards and U.S. mallards equally at the opening of season, like they're all mixed already, well, everybody, you know how it is when season opens, ducks are dumb at the beginning. It's pretty level playing field to start with, right? Like every, all these ducks have relatively um, similar exposure. Um, but at the end of the day, who cares? Like that's where I get to. Who cares? We're shooting Canadian ducks, right? We're shooting Canadian mallards. And so we need to pay attention to that, to that population if that's where the birds that we harvest are really, really coming from. Mike, we're going to start wrapping this up here, and you've acknowledged that there's some there's some uncertainty. The stable isotope analysis is not like highly accurate precision, or the like when you look at the this isoscape as it's called of these these isotope signatures. It's it can it allows you to assign birds with a with a fairly high degree of confidence to broad geographic areas, you know, and and the question about Canadian versus U.S. kind of falls within that uh, that that scale. So there is some acknowledged uncertainty there, and and I know in the publications and some of the the, the reports that y'all are producing. There is a discussion about what next. What's the next piece of information that we need to kind of further understand, to validate, or look at with a finer uh, at a finer degree these results? What's next in that regard? 
Yeah, I mean, where we're headed with it is is linking in the genetics to this, right? The, our sense is is that the you know if you if you think about a game farm setting, you know you keep you keep a, a breeding stock back. Those are all brothers and sisters, right? So I don't want to get into you know some weirdness here of about a straight family tree, but we all know where that goes. Um, and and so I think that understanding, you know, one of the one of my complaints is that we just manage mallards as mallards. And the reality is, is that mallards in the East are not just mallards. They are very, very different beasts across the landscape. Um, and they, they potentially have diff, completely different um, reproductive output, completely different survival. Um, we've got some, you know, good data that are suggesting that that's something that's going on. And it's not published, so I'm speculating at this point still. Um, but I think we really need to stop acting like mallards are just mallards and start a- asking about how these different types of, uh, of mallards um, survive. The way I look at it is this. France, the country of France, stocks 1.2 million mallards per year. It's basically a put and take. Their wintering population of mallards is about 270,000 of, of wild mallards, Right. They have essentially eliminated wild mallards from the landscape. Now think about the culture of mallards in the mid-continent. So this isn't just about the Atlantic Flyway. This is about like a huge resource in billion-dollar industry um, and just conservation of wild mallards potentially. I think that we've really got to get a handle on this. And hey, if it's not a problem, fine. But oh my goodness, if it is, you know, we don't. Who would want to see? the loss of the wild North American mallard. Um, that's That, in my mind, continues to be like the burning question. And we're we're whittling away at it, but, um, you know, calling every greenhead just a greenhead is not helping us in the least. Mike, this continues to be some really fascinating research. Uh, the I never thought that... I never thought that genetics and our ability to understand deeper into the genetic code of ducks across the North American landscape was going to be that piece of science that caused us to really have to think hard about management in the future. You know, I, I never saw, I didn't see that coming. And I don't know how many people did. I think even Phil Lavretsky admitted that whenever they were doing that analysis, just to kind of better differentiate hybrid uh, mallards and black ducks, they were surprised when they saw that signature, that unknown signature, that mystery. And oh my gosh, it opened up a door into a whole suite of possible kind of population and management implications that is one of the more, yeah, one of the more intriguing stories in the waterfowl management community uh, uh, these days. And so where that goes, we'll keep an eye on it. Folks like yourself, Phil, your collaborators, Brian Davis at Mississippi State, and a whole host of other people that are contributing genetic information to these studies and help us better understand some of what's driving the individual differences among birds and is it a management concern. All that stuff is is super cool. Anything, any final thoughts in that regard before we get out of here, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I'm the same. It T-boned me, right? Like, I didn't think I'd be working with mallards. They're really common. We know a ton about them. You know, a lot of my background in ducks was 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 sea ducks. I mean, there's a lot of other species out there that really need our interest as well because we have limited, you know, a lot less information. And there's, there's conservation concerns across the board for a lot of these species. Um, but you're right. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I see it as, um, 
you know, vitally important to, it's funny for a very common species, but I feel like it's vitally important to, to conservation in general because the common, the common species, and we got to keep them common as well. Um, as you know, it takes a village to get the quality work done that we do for the ducks. You know, people might, might not realize, but for about every two years of the graduate students that we put through, you know, that we just talked about, um, that takes about, you know, anywhere from 100 to $125,000 to work them through our programs. And that's before costs of, of field work and such. So, you know, of course, Ducks Unlimited at the forefront of a lot of this um, put a good chunk of funding into both Sam and, and Kayla's research, both the students we were talking about. And there's some really specific supporters of funding that, that flowed through DU to ESF for that. Delta Waterfowl has been a good friend and of our program as well. And um, Craig Kessler and the Long Island Wildfowl Heritage Group um, have been staunch supporters of us. Waterfowl Research Foundation, uh, Robbins Island Foundation, Birds Canada, and specifically we've worked with uh, Dr. Doug Tozer up there. He's been great with us. And then, you know, collaborators like Phil Ratsky, who helps us with a lot of the genetics work uh, at the University of Texas, El Paso, has put in um, his own research dollars to collaborate with us. And then folks, just from the logistics end of things, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, if, if any of you, if any folks send in wings to the, to the Fish and Wildlife Service for you know, on an annual basis as part of that uh, parts collection survey, we got most of our wings for Sam Cushia's work from the Fish and Wildlife Service and Stephen Chandler with the feds um, helped us out quite a bit. And then I, I'd be definitely remiss if we didn't talk about the Mississippi and Atlantic flyway biologists that helped us collect data, right? We, we do this as a, as a collective effort among all those folks who care about the ducks um, Drew Fowler specifically from when he was in Wisconsin, he's down in Louisiana now, was super helpful with helping us collect Mississippi Flyway um, data. So again, it takes a village. We don't do this alone. So we really appreciate everything that Ducks does and the whole community in general to get us um, the information we need to manage this super important resource. Mike, appreciate your generosity with your time here today. You're always a great guest, always bring great information. We appreciate the work that you and your students are doing, and this will not be the last time that we talk with you. I guarantee you that. We'll stay in touch on future research efforts, and I know I'll see you down the road somewhere. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for all you do. Very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Mike Schumer of the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. We appreciate all the great research he and his students are doing up in the Northeast, throughout the Atlantic Flyway, actually. We also thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great job he does with these episodes. We thank you, the listener, for your time. We thank you for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation, and we look forward to you joining us on a future episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. 
Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.